We're in Deuteronomy, right? And we are talking about being God's treasured people. So just like the people in the book of Deuteronomy are God's treasured people, he's, he's called them to be his treasured possession, so you and I are God's treasured people. We're called to be his special chosen people in the world and to live in a certain way. We've been talking through that, what it looks like to live as God's treasured people as we fight against worldliness, as we worship him passionately, as we fight injustice, and those are some, or pursue justice. Those are some things that we've talked about. And this morning we're going to be talking about covenant faithfulness in the area of, of marriage. Now, if you remember, when we were going through the book of Leviticus, we talked about holiness and sexuality. And we kind of talked about 11 principles. We spent five weeks talking about some different principles, such as uh, sexual ethics. We talked about how those are, are grounded in the relationship we see established in Genesis 2. We talked about how sexuality is to be expressed in the context of a permanent covenant marriage relationship. We talked about how sexual morality is not based upon our culture, but upon what a, a holy God calls us to do. We talked about how victims of, of sexual sin are loved and cared for by our Heavenly Father. We talked about how sexuality and marriage are to be pursued in a way that reflects God's holiness. We talked about some other principles, but you get the idea, right? But as far as I can remember, we, we didn't talk about the issue of, of divorce when it comes to the marriage that God has called uh, people to be a part of in that one covenant relationship. We didn't talk, I don't believe we talked about divorce when we were in the book of Ephesians and Ephesians 5. I think the last time we talked about this issue, maybe the only time we've talked about this issue is when we were going through the Gospel of Luke and came to Luke 16 and talked about divorce and marriage and God's will there. And, and again, maybe it's happened before or then but I, I, or since, and I, I can't quite remember, but I don't think so. And we're going to be talking about it this morning. And hopefully this is a, an encouraging thing as we say, okay, here's what God's ideal is. Here's what it looks like in a fallen world where all of us have fallen short of what God's desire for us is in so many areas of life, including the area of marriage. Some of us have, have sinned. Many of us have been sinned against in this area. And how do we respond to that? How do we live as God's treasured possession in a world in which uh, we live in disobedience to him at times? And Others live in disobedience, and it affects us. And again, I think everyone in this room, everyone in this room has been affected by this, this issue. And so hopefully this will be a time of encouragement for us as we look at what God's Word has to say regarding it in this passage and some others as well. And so if you're able to, if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read His Word together. Deuteronomy 24 I'm just going to be focusing this morning on the first five verses of Deuteronomy 24, and here's what Moses writes. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his husband, I'm sorry, who took her to be his wife, then the, her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. 
When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home for one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. You may be seated. And Father, may we indeed be encouraged and strengthened, challenged by your word. Help us to, to hear your words, to, to delight in them even when they're hard, and to rejoice in you. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as, as you know, uh, we live in a culture, the, the North American culture, in which a divorce is very common. It's estimated that 40% of all first marriages end in divorce. Uh, 50% of all marriages, it's, it's estimated, end in divorce. The average age that a person gets divorced at is, is around 30. And so what that means is that there's a large percentage of our population, if you're divorced at an early age and you have your life ahead of you, a very large percent of our adult population is, is divorced and remarried or divorced and single. And so this is a, a huge issue that we need to think about, how, how to respond biblically to this issue. It's estimated that half of children will watch their parents' marriage end in divorce. And so it's an issue that we need to think about as, as a church that loves children as well, how to, to think about this issue biblically. And what's more, not only is divorce very common in our culture, divorce isn't seen as something that's, that's wrong. I think I mentioned a study a few years ago that, that asked different respondents in uh, the Western world what they believed about different moral issues, and they asked people about the issue of divorce. And uh, people in Britain, I think about 9% of respondents felt that divorce was wrong. 5% of the French uh, respondents identified divorce as a moral wrong. And maybe about, uh, I think, less than 25% of people in the United States said that they believed that divorce was wrong. And so we're, we live in a culture in which divorce is, is common. All of us have been affected by divorce in, in some way, either, either personally gone through a divorce or uh, have friends or family members who have gone through that. And what's more, we exist in the culture where divorce is common and divorce is seen as something that's, that's not morally wrong. And so, how do we as a church respond to that? Here's kind of the, the central idea that I want you to grasp with me this morning as we look at Deuteronomy 24. As God's treasured people this morning, as God's treasured people, we commit to covenant faithfulness in marriage so we can preserve a picture of the beauty of the gospel for a world that needs to see Christ. What does that mean? As God's treasured people, that is, as God's people who have been chosen to love and walk in obedience to God, what do we want to do? We want to commit ourselves personally to covenant faithfulness. We're saying we are going to walk in our marriages and, and be faithful to the covenant that we've made with our spouses if we are married. And we do that to honor God, to be in obedience to him. And as we honor God, we recognize that we're preserving, as we commit to covenant faithfulness, we're preserving a picture of the beauty of the gospel for a world that needs to see Christ. Remember, as we went through Genesis 2, as we're in Leviticus 18, as we're in Ephesians 5, what do we see? We saw that marriage is this, this covenant relationship between a man and a woman, and it provides for the world a picture of God's love for his people, of Christ's love for his church. And so as we, as we preserve that picture, what are we doing? We're preserving a picture 
of the gospel. Now, now what does that mean? It means, on the one hand, we need to hold firm and fast and boldly to that picture of marriage. We need to be bold whenever we say that the divorce is wrong. It always represents a breaking of a covenant relationship. We're going to talk about that as we go on. So we're going to hold up that ideal of marriage, that picture of marriage, and we do so, we hold up that ideal because it's, it's God's instruction for us, and it's God's picture. We want to preserve that, and we don't want, to, we don't want to, to diminish that picture by saying marriage isn't that important, or divorce is okay, or it doesn't always somehow represent sin on the part of one or both parties. We don't, we don't, want, to, we don't want to damage that picture, okay? But at the same time, we have to be careful because we want to be very, very gracious. Because that, that picture that we're preserving of the gospel is a gospel that is not proclaimed to perfect people. In other words, there is no one in this room who is married who can say, I have perfectly fulfilled my covenant marriage relationship in every way possible. There's been no sin on my part of that covenant relationship, and therefore I don't need the gospel. Every single one of us who is married or has been divorced, who has witnessed divorce, those of us who aren't married have failed in other ways. All of us would say, I've, I've failed in that picture, that, that picture that God desires for people to see. And so, you see the tension there? We're preserving, as, as we talk about marriage, we say, look, this is what God wants from marriage, and we're not going to shy away from that. We're not going to diminish that picture. We're going to be, be confident as we say, this is what God desires marriage to be, because it's the gospel. God is, is faithful to his people perfectly. That's, that's the ideal. And then at the same time, we say, now, that, that gospel picture is being proclaimed and given to people who don't fulfill that. As God's treasured people, we say, look, we are people who have received the gospel. We're people who have been saved from sin, sin and marriage, sin in all sorts of areas of life. As God's treasured people, we're committing to faithfulness, covenant faithfulness in marriage, because we want to preserve a picture of the beauty of the gospel for a world that desperately needs to see Christ. So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of go through some principles here that I think are going to help us honor God as his treasured possession in the area of marriage, but in particular in the area of divorce. Three principles. The second principle is going to have like tons of sub-principles and sub-sub-principles and, you know, do what you want with that. I'll try to publish it somewhere where you can just write it down or you can take a picture of it or something, but uh, you're not going to be able to write it down as fast as we go through it. But here we go. Here's the first principle. Marriage is a covenant agreement, right? Marriage is a covenant agreement between God and a man and woman for them to live together as a husband and wife. So look here at the text with me. It begins, and Moses writes, when a man takes a wife and marries her. Now, remember, this is these, these first five books of the Bible are all one work. It's all part of the Pentateuch. And so we go back. We're in Deuteronomy. You go back to Genesis, and in Genesis 2, we see this marriage relationship established. In Genesis 2, it says that God takes the, the woman, forms her from the man, and the man sees her, and there's excitement. He says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then we, we see this theological truth in verse 24 of Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
That's, that's marriage. When we went through Genesis 2, we saw a couple things about God's design for marriage from Genesis 2. We saw that God designs marriage for companionship. He designs there to be roles within the marriage relationship. He, he creates gender in the marriage relationship. He creates joy in the marriage relationship. And the marriage relationship is based upon covenant. A man and a woman come together for the purpose of, of oneness, to glorify God through oneness, just like God and his, his people, God's in this permanent relationship with his people in a marriage relationship. We pursue God's glory by, by oneness, by showing that to, to the world. We leave, we cling, the result is this one flesh relationship. That's, that's our theological understanding of what's happening with, with marriage. And as we have that understanding of the marriage relationship, we recognize that just like the Israelites, we're trying to preserve that picture in a culture that largely rejects that understanding of marriage. So God's purpose of marriage is to create this picture of his relationship with his people. The culture not only rejects the idea of God and his relationship with his people, but they reject the picture of the relationship between God and his people. I think it was whenever we were going through Genesis that I, I looked up the wedding video and wrote out the vows. I, I, I knew basically what I committed to Whitney, but I couldn't remember my exact wording. And we stood in front of a group of people and the pastor said, Daniel, will you take Whitney to be your wife, to live together in marriage? Do you promise to love and comfort her, honor and support her in sickness and in health? Do you forsake all others to cling to her alone? And do you devote yourself to her as long as you both shall live? On August 7th, 1999, in front of a hundreds of people, I said, I do. I said, I do, something like that, you know, but I said, I do. You know. And then I said, uh, I, Daniel, take you, Whitney, to be my wife, to love and to cherish from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and in health, so long as we shall live. I, I said those words to, to Whitney. I committed to covenant faithfulness, and I did so in the midst of a culture that, that rejects that understanding of, of marriage. Maybe not explicitly, but implicitly. We live in a very disposable culture, right? Things don't last very long, including relationships. A few years ago, maybe five years ago, uh, Whitney and I became uh, coffee drinkers. Now, I, I think I wrote down to tell the story some time ago, but I was too embarrassed, as you'll see, uh, to finish telling the story. I don't think I actually did. But we became coffee drinkers, and we did what all uh, uh, coffee drinkers do. Um, we, we purchased a coffee maker. And we found Mr. Coffee at this, this box store that's going to remain nameless, and we, we brought Mr. Coffee into our home. And uh, for a while, Mr. Coffee and, and we had just a, a very beautiful relationship. It was going well. Uh, Mr. Coffee was providing us with what we needed. And uh, we were enjoying having Mr. Coffee. Uh, then Mr. Coffee kind of developed some problems about six months into our relationship. And so we, we sent Mr. Coffee back to the store and brought home a new Mr. Coffee. And for a while, uh, Mr. Coffee number two was, was doing pretty well. And then, you know, uh, 
just wasn't as hot as it used to be and whatever the things were. And so we'd send Mr. Coffee back and then came again and there was another problem with the coffee maker. And so we returned several Mr. Coffees. And uh, the, the, the last time, or two times ago, I guess technically, I, we, were, we were talking about it and he said, yeah, the Mr. Coffee just isn't, um, you know, he, he, the, the, the Mr. Coffee starts and then it just, just stops suddenly and, and don't know what to do. I said, well, I don't know. I, I, I feel like at this point, um, we probably should just buy a new one. Like, I, I know we can return it, but I feel at this point, like, we're really taking advantage of the return policy here. And uh, when he said, look, it's, it's the return policy, and, it, you know, each one lasts about seven, eight months, and then it just kind of suddenly stops. I said, yeah, but I don't know. This is, like, number five or something. And, and she goes, no, I think we can. I said, okay, but I'm g- <laughs> we'll go, but I'm just going to stand back here. And, and, and I'm going to pretend like I'm looking at things, and you go ahead and return it. And she returned. I, I heard the, the lady say to her, she goes, I'm sorry, we can't, we can't exchange this. And I'm thinking, oh, the nightmare is over. Thank goodness. And she goes, we can just give you a store credit, and you can go back there and get another one. I thought, oh, it started all over again. And so uh, last week, we just returned our seventh Mr. Coffee. Um, now, I love Mr. Coffee. I think he, he does a great job, but then just suddenly... Suddenly, he just doesn't live up to expectations any longer. He just kind of shuts down, and so we return him. Now, here's my point. We live in a culture. We live in a culture where you can return a coffee maker seven times. I don't know if you can do it legally, but we've done it, okay? (laughs) And that's the culture. What we do with, with, with items, we can do with relationships as well. Relationships are, for a time, good, and then we can, we can exchange them. That, that's kind of the culture in which we, we live as, as Christians. And so we have to ask, when it comes to the area of, of marriage, how, how do we process that? The ultimate purpose in marriage is the glory of God through our, our oneness, through our com- covenant commitment to one another, to show that picture we, we make this vow with one another. Permanence is a, is a part of pursuing the glory of God in our marriage. And as we think about that being the ultimate purpose, we recognize all the things that are missing from that understanding of the ultimate purpose. In other words, we're not saying the ultimate purpose of marriage is to feel love. The ultimate purpose of marriage isn't to be cared for. The ultimate the purpose of marriage isn't to, to get respect. All those things should be in a marriage, but it's not the ultimate purpose. There's no caveat in the vows we make with one another as we stand before God and witnesses and make this, this commitment. Here, here's the second principle then. Divorce then always means the breaking of a covenant with God. Divorce always means the breaking of a covenant with God. Now, Sometimes it's one party's fault. Sometimes it's both parties' fault. Sometimes one of the members who's experiencing the breaking of this covenant has no desire to experience it, and yet, and yet has to. The, the point that I want us to understand is, and, and this isn't something that our culture accepts, even among Christians, divorce always means the breaking of a covenant with God. Look at the text with me again. And I want you to notice this passage isn't encouraging divorce. It's it's regulating how it should take place. It's making divorce more difficult than the culture around them and narrowing the scope in which it can occur. In other words, the people around them, uh, the marriage relationships could be very casual. Okay, we're married today. You know what? I'm not enjoying this relationship anymore. I'm going to be over with this person, and and you can go over with this person. Now you can come back, and we can be in a relationship again. No, there's a process by which the, the covenant relationship comes to a conclusion, it says that the, the 
wife finds no favor in his eyes. We'll talk about that in just a moment. She's committed some sort of indecency in his opinion. And so he, has to, he writes a certificate. He puts it in her hand. He sends her out. And then she leaves the house and can't return. They can't return back again to that covenant marriage relationship if they enter into covenant relationships with other people. It's putting a, a process in place by which the dissolution of a marriage can take place. And it's protecting parties from abuse, the toying of affections, preserving that that picture of marriage as much as possible in a world in which God's design for marriage isn't being upheld. So here's a couple thoughts as we think through this. Number one, sub-thought here. Mankind's hardness of heart means that they will not always be faithful to the covenants they make with one another, including the covenant of marriage. Okay. Describes here a woman who no longer finds favor in her husband's eyes. He's found some indecency in her. And, and the question, as people approach that text in, in the years that go by, the question is, okay, what exactly does that mean, indecency? And there become different schools of thought. It goes up in, in the time, 1,500 years later, in Jesus' day. Jesus and the Pharisees are, are talking about marriage, and the Pharisees are trying to trick Jesus. Remember that in Matthew 19? And the, the Pharisees are trying to test him. They say, okay, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus, what does he respond? He responds back to Genesis 2. He says, look, here's the purpose of marriage. He says, haven't you read that God created them from the beginning and he made them male and female? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They're not two, but one. What, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And Jesus ends his answer there. Look, this is, this is the design. This is what marriage is supposed to be. This is, this is the picture that God is creating with marriage. The Pharisees say, whoa, 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 whoa. Deuteronomy 24. Then, I mean, they don't say Deuteronomy 24, but they quote Deuteronomy 24. They say, well, why did Moses give one a, a certificate, command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And Jesus responds, it's because of your hardness of heart that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So when this takes place, this is, this is adultery, this is marring the picture of marriage that God desires. Mankind's hardness of heart means that they're not always going to be faithful to the covenants they make with God and with one another, and this includes in, in the covenant of marriage. Now, here's a, a second thought here as we think about divorce and the breaking of a covenant. God's allowance for divorce doesn't mean he condones it. And that's where the Pharisees misunderstand here. They say, okay, well, look, if, if marriage, if divorce isn't okay, if it's not all right to say, you know what, um, and, and so there were two schools of thought in Jesus' day. One said it was only in the circumstances of immorality that divorce could take place. The other school said, look, if, if the wife burns the food or if uh, she's not as pretty as she used to be, whatever, we, you can divorce her. Just hit, here's a certificate, put her hand, it's over. And Jesus says, look, both schools don't understand the picture of marriage that God is trying to create here. In other words, you can't say, you know what, there's some sort of thing you've done wrong, here's a certificate, you know, now, now we're done. Jesus is saying, no, every time the divorce takes place, it's, it's a breaking of a covenant. It's not always both parties' fault in the sense that both parties desire it, but it always represents a, a falling short of God's ideal for marriage. 
You come to Malachi chapter 2, for example, and, and you see how much God is opposed to divorce. In Malachi chapter 2, that the people are perplexed as to why God isn't happy with them. And Malachi says, it's because the Lord was witness. The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he he make them one with a, a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking godly offspring, so guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithful, be faithless to the wife of your youth. So here, here's, he's saying, look, you're wondering why God's upset with you, and yet you, you have violated the covenant you made with your wife, the wife of your youth. You've now, you've left her, you've failed to be faithful to her, and, and that's why God is displeased with you. And, and the people go on, they say, well, I don't understand, what do you mean? He talks about how they've said that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. In other words, the people are saying, look, what we've done in regards to this wife that we made covenant vows with, what we've done is okay. And God says, absolutely not. God allows for divorce in his grace, he recognizes that people are not going to be faithful to the covenant relationships and agreements they make with one another and, and to protect, especially the offended party, to protect especially a, a wife who has a husband who sends her away, he creates a process by which a woman is going to be protected and a woman whose husband abandons her is going to have the ability to enter into another covenant relationship in which her husband can provide and protect for her. God in his grace does that. Third thing to think about here, divorce truly severs the covenant relationship. We see that throughout Scripture. As you come to the end of Deuteronomy 24, he describes a scenario in which a woman is sent away from her husband. She marries, so the husband leaves her, she marries another husband, and then that husband leaves her or dies. He says, you, you can't enter back in again to this, this covenant relationship. Unlike the culture around you who treats marriage casually, who treats these covenant agreements with disdain, that can't be so among my people. You can't just go around marrying, remarrying, marrying, remarrying each other. This is a true covenant relationship, and divorce severs it. It's a serious deal. It's a breaking of a covenant with God, and you can't enter and re-enter that casually. But here's the fourth thing I want you to see as we, we talk about these verses. The fourth thing is this. God's grace in divorce, the fact that Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 exists, God's grace in divorce should give us all hope and encouragement. In other words, in Matthew 19, when the Pharisees are, are talking to Jesus about the divorce, their, their focus is on the divorce itself. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Don't, don't focus. Don't have your hearts that are focused on exceptions and how can I get out of this covenant. Here's God's ideal. Okay, this is Genesis 2. This is the relationship. This is, again, this is the picture that we have to boldly talk about and preserve and say marriage represents a break or divorce represents a breaking of this. That's bold. We say that with confidence. And yet, and yet what? The gospel message that the marriage relationship is a picture of 
is a message not to those who have upheld their covenant commitments perfectly, but to those who failed in them. The presence of Deuteronomy 24 says, look, God knows that there's going to be failure. And our commitment to this ideal doesn't mean that we are are people who believe that we are always going to be be perfectly obedient to that ideal. It means that we're going to say, look, this, this is obedience, and anything short of this is disobedience. And yet, in my disobedience, God is gracious and the gospel is proclaimed. Now, do we continue in sin that grace may increase? Of course not. But there's great hope. Look, where there's failure, there's grace. God's grace in divorce should encourage not just those who've, who've been through the pain of divorce, but it should encourage all of us who've, who've been married and fallen short of, of what we know God desires us to do in our marriage relationships, but those of us who are single and are thinking about someday being married, or those of us who are, are single and have no intention of being married. It should give, wherever we are in life, it should give us encouragement to think, okay, here's God's grace. He's gracious to people in this circumstance. He's gracious to all of us. Now, let me take a few minutes here and just give you some some pastoral thoughts here. And these are not official doctrinal teachings of Bethany Community Church. These are some things that, you know, if God is gracious, if it's true that God is gracious, and he is, um, how do we live in a world of divorce as God's people? Because all of us are in different circumstances in life, and how do we advise people we love? How do we think about marriage? How do we think about divorce, whatever circumstance we're in? Here are just some, here's some thoughts that are my convictions in terms of how to apply these things and how I apply counsel, some, some personal convictions on divorce and remarriage, and these are adapted from other people as well. But number one is, is this. Um, first principle I'd have is that a believer and unbeliever should not marry. Okay, So if you're a person who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ, and there's another person in your life who has not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, that, that marriage, you, sh- you shouldn't marry that person. In fact, just, just recently, I had to sit down with, with a couple and say, look, um, I, I don't think you guys are on the same page about what you believe about how a person can have eternal life. And I, I love both of you, but I think you're in violation of what God uh, tells us through 1 Corinthians. And when it says that a a woman can marry in the Lord. Second Corinthians says not to be yoked with unbelievers in Second Corinthians 6. And so a believer and unbeliever shouldn't marry. It would be my first pastoral counsel to a couple who are preparing to make that covenant marriage relationship. A secondly, a second principle that helps me think through this pastorally is since death breaks the marriage bond, remarriage is permissible without sin for a believing widow or widower if the marriage is with another believer. So here's a wife and her husband and the husband dies, and the wife can remarry a, another believer. There's, that's not a very controversial biblical position. So, you know, I, I die next week, uh, Whitney can, can remarry. You need to, to pray for her that she wouldn't struggle with discontentment as she compares new guy to me. But, you know, just that's it's biblical, okay? It's going to be hard, but biblical. Too dark? Sorry. Um, I'm feeling good. God's gracious. Number three, uh, and third principle, though, is that divorce may be permitted. It may be permitted when a spouse deserts the relationship or commits adultery. So here's wife and her husband, and the husband abandons the relationship, and he begins to pursue uh, other relationships and commits immorality. And in those circumstances, divorce may be permitted. It's not required, but there may be circumstances in which divorce 
can be permitted, uh, permitted in, in those, those circumstances. 1 Corinthians 7, uh, we, we see Paul describing uh, this, this scenario. It says that, um, it talk, yeah, it talks about a woman who has a, a husband who's an unbeliever. She, she remains, if he consents to live with her, she, she shouldn't divorce him. Okay, so now if an unbelieving partner separates and abandons the marriage, let it be so. In that, such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. And so now, what does that mean to desert the relationship? I think that's a, an issue you have to think through very carefully. So clearly, if a, you have an unbelieving and believing partner and there's consent to live together, or two partners who confess to be believing there's consent to, to live together, divorce should not be pursued. Let's say you have, again, a husband who abandons or who begins to uh, commit adultery, or, or perhaps even in a circumstance there's, a, there's a, um, a commitment to violence and to not allowing her to live in this, in this home. Uh, there's a, a clear desire to, to drive her from the home. Uh, We'd have to talk through uh, how to, to go about that and think about that, but divorce is permitted in those, in those circumstances, I believe. A fourth principle, so you have, uh, the fourth principle is this, when the aggrieving divorced spouse remarries, so that's the person who's, who's done the abandoning or who is, who's engaged in the immorality. Whenever that, that person leaves the marriage relationship and they remarry, then I think you have a circumstance in which the person who's been abandoned can also remarry. Matthew 19, I think, is, is describing that exception. The aggrieved spouse, the person, in other words, who's, who's been wronged against, I think still has to say, okay, um, have I dealt with bitterness? Have I dealt with uh, any sin that I was guilty of in the divorce? Uh, anger, uh, very understandable emotions, but have I, have I dealt with those things? And I would encourage a person who's been abandoned or who is, who's had a spouse harm them, that they would Make sure they've, before God and others, worked through those things as much as possible before beginning a new relationship. But I believe there's freedom in that. A fifth principle to help us think through this is, is after serious efforts have been made toward reconciliation. So here's a scenario where, um, where a spouse abandons another spouse and, and this spouse is left wondering, okay, what do I do? I believe there are some circumstances where they can come to regard their marriages as, as irreparably broken, and remarriage can be permitted in those circumstances. Now, that's a hard one, okay? And I think there's some gray area there as well, and I think that's a, a, my pastoral brotherly encouragement to, be a pers- to a person would be to wait a long time before they reach that conclusion and to, to do so with, with great fear and timidity because, of course, the hope would be that God would, would work in the heart of a person who's wronged you and would uh, lead them to repentance. Sixth principle, an aggrieving partner, so this is the, the person who is who has left a marriage relationship, if, if a, a grieving partner needs to repent, needs to be reconciled to God. Say, okay, you know what? I cannot believe that I, I've done this, and God, I, I need your forgiveness. That's, that's God's call on that person's life. Now, if they can, they also, in this, they're, person they left has not remarried. I believe this is permissible and, and a good thing, if possible, for that marriage covenant to be reestablished. They haven't entered into new covenant relationships with other people, become uh, reestablish those relationships. And if it's too late because their spouse has been remarried, my conviction would be that they need to remain single because they left their first marriage without biblical warrant. And then a seventh principle would be this. If, if a second marriage ends in divorce or death, 
the widow or widower in this case is not permitted to return to the first spouse. And so you've, you leave a spouse, you get remarried, they get remarried, then there's another divorce or death. You come, I, I think that is a violation of what's happening in Deuteronomy 24 here. And then finally, a fifth or a final just kind of category in which I would encourage people pastorally is, is this. A, a marriage between a man and a woman is a binding covenant, even if it's begun under circumstances in which repentance is required. So you have a, in this scenario, you have a husband and, and wife who are married and the husband abandons the wife and then he remarries. And some people would say, well, because you remarried under wrong circumstances in which repentance is required, that, that marriage didn't take. It's not a real marriage. And that's absolutely contrary to what we see in Scripture. So contrary to Deuteronomy 24, contrary to what Jesus tells the woman at the well in John 4, what I think it ha- happens in those scenarios is this. A person says, boy, uh, what I did in this first marriage relationship was, was sin. It was not preserving the, the picture of the gospel that God calls me to uphold. I've, I've fallen short. And, and, and God, I, I need your forgiveness. And maybe there are other, you know, the, the party wrong, there needs to be forgiveness. And maybe there are children that need to be sought forgiveness. And repentance needs to take place. And yet, even though that's the case, what we see very clearly in Scripture is that, that marriage is a true binding covenant marriage and now in this, this new marriage, a person has the opportunity to preserve the beauty of the gospel through faithfulness to the covenant that they've made. The point is this, okay? Those are some pastoral thoughts on divorce, and we can unpack more of those if you'd like. But the, the, the point is this. We want to preserve the beauty of the picture of the gospel, that God loves his people permanently. And we want to preserve that picture in our marriages. And we want to preserve that picture in our, in our ideal of marriage. I'm going to say that boldly. And we want to recognize that, that divorce is the breaking of a covenant and a, and a marring of that picture. It may be our fault, maybe someone else's fault, but we want to acknowledge hey, that this is not what God desires. This is not obedience to the gospel. And by God's grace, the gospel offers forgiveness and hope and joy. And it's surprising to me, you know, I I think we have to say that boldly because it's surprising to me how often I I talk to young people, how often I talk to to older people would say that they have no perception that God has that that call in their life. And they say, you know what, we were in love, now we're out of love, and I think God's okay with this. And we say, no, no, Malachi 2, Deuteronomy 24, Matthew 19, God desires us to preserve the picture created in Genesis 2. And any, any deviation from that, even if it's not our fault, is, is a sinful deviation. Not saying that we are the ones personally committing sin, even if we're having sin committed against us, we recognize this is not God's design for marriage, not the picture he wants us to create. And yet by the gospel we see there's forgiveness and grace and peace. Here's the third principle. God's blessing, third principle here, God's blessing in marriage is a joy to be preserved, uh, is a joy to be pursued. God's blessing in marriage is a joy to be pursued. I kind of want to end on a positive note here, right? Because <laughs> what do we see in the, in the next verse? He said these hard words about divorce and, and this, you know, 
You can just imagine being this, this poor woman who's gone through this process of having two husbands divorce her, or a husband divorce her, and, and a, another husband who is, has died or, or divorced her. And, and now we come to verse 5, and we, we see, look, here, here's, here's what God desires there to be in this marriage relationship. He says, when, when a man is newly married, when a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home for one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. In other words, the marriage relationship is, is a relationship that God has created for joy to be pursued within. It's showing us a picture of our relationship with God. And that relationship that we have with God is to be a relationship in which we're pursuing joy. God is to be the, the fullness of joy for us. And, and marriage is supposed to be, be a picture of that. And what that means is God desires us to, to take the time and to take the effort to pursue joy in that relationship. And I know that it doesn't always happen, but that's what God's design and desire for our marriage is. We see this in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And it talks about how in Ephesians 5, we're to love our wives like our own bodies. It's to, we're to nourish and cherish them. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6. The woman says to her beloved, she says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love Love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are the flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. She says, I want this, I want this covenant relationship with you where there's, there's permanence and commitment. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Translation, can't buy me love, Right? Love is, is something that God gives us in, in the joy of this covenant relationship. And then we come to Proverbs 5. In Proverbs 5, it's been talking about adultery and the, the terrible pain of adultery. And then you come to verse 15, and we read about the positive side of, of marriage. So you flee adultery and you pursue your wife. Drink water from your own cistern. Flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad? Streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. That's God's ideal. And brothers and sisters, in a culture, in a world, and even in our own hearts that doesn't hold to that ideal, what do we want to do? We want to say, look, this is, this is what God's design for marriage is. This is the picture that God wants us to see of marriage. The way that we perceive how marriage should be is, is a picture of what we believe God's relationship with his people is. And we believe that God loves his imperfect people perfectly and permanently. And the gospel message is that a loving God comes to those of us who have fallen, you know, if this is God's ideal for marriage, we've all fallen short. If we're, if we're single and this is God's ideal for singleness, all have fallen short. We say, okay, God takes those of us who, here's his ideal and here's I'm, this is not to scale, and this is where we are. 
God in his grace comes into relationship with us, that's, that's the picture that we want to continue to, to strive for and to boldly proclaim as God gives us the grace to do so in our marriage and our singleness, wherever God has placed us. As God's treasured people, what do we do? We commit. We commit to covenant faithfulness in marriage so we can preserve a picture of the beauty of the gospel for a world that needs to see Christ. Through our faith in Jesus Christ, we, pr- we pursue that picture so that people can see the beauty of the Lord that we love. Through faith in him, we've entered into a relationship with God, and we want to proclaim that through our marriages, through our singleness, through whatever circumstance God in his grace has placed us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how gracious you are to us. We thank you for how, even in this area of divorce that we've been talking about this morning, where all of us have felt the sting of, of fractured relationships in one way or the other, we thank you for how you love us and preserve us in the midst of that. Father, I pray for your hand on each of us, wherever our our hearts are this morning. I pray for your special kindness and grace, your gentleness as we seek to pursue you and love you and glorify your name. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.